verse 8. Is the stick in there? Okay. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, wonderful word. So, Father, as I have just prayed, do it. Open our minds, open our hearts. We covet the work of your spirit, of conviction of our sin. Oh, what a grace that is for us who believe. So do it by letting us see and letting your word deal with us to the glory of your name. Amen. If you remember last week, we concentrated on that phrase, whatever is true, truth, think about that. And we did, and we thought about what, what is truth. And we said there is such a thing as truth, objective, out there, real truth. Not just in mathematics, two plus two is four, but moral truth. And when you talk about objective, moral, right versus wrong, another term for that is justice. And he tells us also, think about whatever is just. So that's my focus this morning. Does God care about us who, who are Christians does he care whether we live justly, do justice in, in, in our lives, in our daily lives, in the, the micro, the personal Christian life? Obviously, yes. So the second question is, does he care about macro, societal justice? The answer is yes. It's right there. Whatever is just. Here it is. Think about that. Me love it. Promote it. Follow it. So let's first begin with the personal, the micro justice by turning to Proverbs chapter 11. It is stated so succinctly and clearly. Verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is His delight. So, look, here's the picture that's being painted here. You're a seller of wheat in the marketplace in Old Testament times and someone comes up to your table and they want 
five pounds of wheat. And you tell them, yes, it's 10 cents a pound. And so you take out your five pound rock and you place it on your scale. One side goes all the way down, the other up, and you start pouring wheat on top of the other until the scale balances. And then you pour that in the bag and you hand it to the customer. That's five pounds of wheat. Then as you go home at night, you realize, you know what? I think I could probably get more bang from my buck. If, and so you do, start to hollow out the five pound stone, chip away. Take about a pound out of it. Cover it up with a little bit of plaster, clay or something so they can't see it. The next morning, a poor mom comes in and says, I would like five pounds of wheat. And you say, got it. And you put the five pound stone on the scale. It goes down and you pour the wheat until the scale balances. She paid for five pounds. Pour that wheat into a bag and hand it to her. And she goes her way. And you only gave her four pounds. The text says, that is an abomination to the Lord. But if the stone weighs five pounds, you pour the wheat, you gave them five pounds, that pleases the Lord. A just, as opposed to an unjust, weight is the Lord's delight. Okay, we're not sellers in the market, so how does that stuff work in our present day for us? Well, you're selling your used car. And you know your used car. We used to actually have a family car that did this. <laughs> you know that this is great. It'll go for a while. Once you've been driving for 30 minutes or so, that for whatever reason, it got hot enough, the car just literally stops and it won't go anymore until you cool down. But you know that... They're not going to be able to drive it that long before I get their money. That's an abomination to the Lord by hiding that from them. I, I remember years ago, R.C. Sproul told the story, and you can see, you know, with, he's a theologian, a teacher, a writer, and he does all that really well, did all that really well. He's with Jesus now. And, of course, they had a marketing company to market all his, his stuff. I know that he used to call me all the time and irritate me, but <laughs> no, no. But they had a marketing company and they told him, RC, you have to say this, whatever that product was, this will change your life. And RC refused because he knew it was a lie. He doesn't know going to change everyone's life. Actually, he's pretty sure it's not going to change everyone's life. He hopes it would, but he did not want to put a false balance on the scale. His soul and his relationship with God and God's delight meant more to him than more books or courses sold. A realtor may hide a flooding problem with a house until the transaction is finally made, all the money is switched, it's done. False balance. A house painter may contract with the homeowner 
who, who says, I want you to use this brand of paint, top quality, most expensive paint. He agrees, but then he uses a lesser quality, least expensive paint. It is an abomination to the Lord. Injustice can re- go the other way too. It can be the buyer manipulating, scheming the seller. Proverbs 20.14 says it this way. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. Look what I got for this. Reamed. That can include manipulating your own mind, knowing I really don't want to pay that much to the waiter. You know what? That really wasn't very good service. I mean, when it was good service. See, I ain't getting my 20% or even 15%. I'll give them 8% tip. Bad service. Bad service, says the buyer. It includes dishonest claims in insurance. Well, it's just in a company. No, no. Okay. So that you can get a higher settlement. Such dealings are injustice to the other person. She or he does not get their just due. You sold them a car that was a lemon and told them what would be the opposite of a lemon. I don't know. What if? A gem. There you go. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just, just, it's just, it's right as opposed to wrong. A just weight is his delight. Now, what does that mean? So let's go to that now. Why is it that if we do justice in the small things of life to other persons, Why is that a delight to God, to Yahweh, to our Lord Jesus? The reason, in short, is this. Because that glorifies the Lord's faithfulness to us. You are the one I trust. Where should I do? Where should I go? How should I act this way? Okay, I can trust you to do justice. And I want you to turn one place where you see this clearly. Leviticus chapter 19, the book of the law. God's law through Moses. Starting with verse 35 of Leviticus 19. You shall do no wrong in judgments, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ipfa and a just hin. I am Yahweh. Your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am Yahweh. So notice how God motivates honesty and justice here. Verse 36. How? I am Yahweh. His personal name, a play off of the to be verb. I am that I am the way he revealed himself to Moses. You shall call me therefore Yahweh. Meaning, I'm the one who has the power of being. I have always been being and it will always be being. I am absolute. I am utterly independent. That's how he motivates them. And then he's not, I'm Yahweh, your Elohim, your God. And he connects it with this. The God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have all power. I have all authority. I'm everything. I brought you, my people, out you can trust that all of my power, all of my being is for you. I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Christian, the land of spiritual death into real Holy Spirit-filled, spiritual life. I've given you eternal life. You've crossed over the Jordan. And that's why he says, do justice. I'm Yahweh, your God, who saved you. For Christians, that true exodus is the blood of Christ and the grace of new birth by the Holy Spirit. And we just say, what is all that have to do with the way that we sell a used car? What does it have to do with doing right as opposed to wrong in our lives and transactions with others? He says you shall have just balances, just weights, a just, a just hen, those are measurements, one cup, a full cup. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I think the logic is clear and plain. If you've really come to know him, Yahweh, the I am, Elohim, the God who created the universe and all powerful, and who's revealed himself, becoming one of us in Jesus Christ. If you trust him, that he is, therefore, for you. If, you're, if your faith is encouraged and it, and it grows at that prospect, then when that God of yours says, don't do that, your trust says, okay. You won't need to deceive in business dealings. You won't need to lie about the car. That's what faith is. Every one of you and me, we sing it today. 
To one extent or another, we sin every day. The mark of a Christian is not that they don't sin. The mark of a Christian is it is amazing at other times when they could sin, they don't. And when they do, they repent. And when they hear a message like this, hmm, we search ourselves. Say, yes, I want to love righteousness. So, that's what I mean when I say that the reason God delights in justice, just weights, doing honest dealings with people is because those actions point to our faith in Christ, God's word, which brings him, therefore, glory. When a Christian, because of the promises of God, because of the commands of God, act with integrity based upon that, then that person demonstrates, I'm looking to something else. Why would I continue to live my life like I used to? Why would I live it like all the men and women in the world who scheme and connive to cheat others in order to step on them and raise themselves up? I've come to Christ. Lord, you're my joy. To whom else shall I go? But to the God of Proverbs 11.1. 1. I shall obey your command through the Apostle Paul and make it part of my life to consider, to think about what is just, to walk in it, to love it. Now, let's move to the macro. Justice in the societal realm. Does God delight in that? I mean, that includes lots of people who don't know Jesus. It includes unbelievers. But I say that God does delight in justice being done in society, courts, police departments, all of which include not just Christians, but unbelievers. Why? Because as we saw last week, there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as just, as opposed to unjust. There is justice. There is injustice. Why? Because God exists. And therefore, in this present evil world, where there is and to whatever extent justice is done, is upheld by Christians, by non-Christians, by governments, by communities, by police departments, to whatever extent justice is being upheld, then it reflects something of God. And in that, he rejoices. Justice being upheld in the present evil world 
to any extent is God's active grace. We call it in theology common grace. It's not saving grace. It doesn't get anyone to heaven. It's the grace of the sun rising in the morning, of the rain falling on the farmer's crop who is just, and also on the farmer's crop who is unjust. It is the grace that is happening this very moment for every sinner on earth who is breathing. It's God's common grace. This common grace in justice is God's grace that keeps society from falling into sheer anarchy. If you lived through what happened in Rwanda in the 1990s, you will know what anarchy produces. You don't want it. You want some kind of justice happening and being enforced corporately. We got tastes of this injustice and anarchy in 2020 in cities like Minneapolis and Santa Monica and Portland when the police were pulled back and the injustice is done by mobs of leftists. And destroying people's livelihoods and businesses and the ramifications in those communities for the next couple decades is injustice. When God sees the work of his own common grace, though, holding the world back from ultimate ruin until it's time for that to happen when Jesus comes back. When he sees to one extent or another justice, justice, then he delights in what he sees. And show, so should we. God, in other words, delights in giving tastes of his justice through honest business dealings. He delights in it through state laws which are reflecting and upholding the second table of the Ten Commandments, like thou shalt not murder or steal or burglarize or bear false witness. He delights in those laws. He delights in police officers who must use force at times to enforce those laws. He delights when prosecutors do justice and not injustice. He delights in court systems that are upholding justice. So what does that mean for us who are Christians living in this world in whichever societies, in whichever forms of governments, in whichever centuries we live it means that we are to do what Paul said. Think. Use your head. Think about whatever is just 
But you cannot do that unless you think about whatever is unjust. And love the just and hate the injustices. So what do we do? We think and we stand for what's right. And we stand against the promotion of what is morally wrong. Like racism, which is being preached everywhere in our society through the worldview of critical race theory. With their program of anti-racism, don't be fooled by the mastery of those who know how to manipulate language. We should hate the stupidity and the evil of racism in whichever guise it comes. So let me just give you, a for, a for example, a historical example. What I, what I mean for Christians, what I'm saying is this. Because evil in a society is an abomination to God, injustice is His delight. Therefore, it was right, it was appropriate for those Christian abolitionists in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s to work, to write, to influence the culture in order to finally and ultimately do away with the evil of slavery. It was God's grace. It was His common grace. It was His work that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's cabin to wake up many Americans to the reality and the evilness of black race-based slavery in this country. So now let's go back Micro, macro, for make clear the distinction now. There's a big difference between personal justice being done and, watch this, and forgiveness of the one who has done the injustice against me. That's a different level than the macro than the societal. I'm called to forgive those who ask for forgiveness of me personally. That is not in the same category as the societal duty to uphold and to enact justice. We believers know that if God dealt with us only with justice, we would be eternally condemned. We're believers, which means God dealt with us with mercy. And he did it without compromising justice. That's what the cross is about. So first, in the micro, in our personal lives, we're not to be quick to demand punishment. To demand justice upon that person mercy how could a Christian do that 
Jesus was clear in Matthew 5, verse 44 to 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What do you mean? He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Therefore, love your enemies. Pray for them. You formerly hell-bound sinners. Paul, Paul takes what Jesus says. He reflects, reflects it this way to the church in Romans 12. Starting with verse 14, he says to us, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another as believers. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave that to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Yahweh. To the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. So in other words, when Christians live this way, we magnify the glory of God in mercy on the cross. Tell me, as Peter was what is it that moves you that way? Give me, a, what's the reason for that hope within you? That you feed me, you persecutor. Oh, let me tell you, I'm glad you asked. We show that because of his supreme value to us, we don't need in this life to take our own we don't need to hold on to and feel the, the vengeance is coming out of us. We can, as we'll see next week, what Paul tells us, our contentment is in Christ. We know he's God at all. We know that justice will be done. For us, we know that that has been done. On the cross, where a substitute took it. And we know for that person whom we, 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 we may struggle and fight to forgive, and I can't take my own vengeance, no one's getting away with anything ever. 
There will be a day they'll stand having all of their sins washed away just like you. Or they'll stand without a redeemer. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Okay, there's the micro. That's the micro. But that micro reality that we're called to in our Christian lives, don't ever let that blur the macro. Where God is glorified to the extent within societies, justice is upheld. And one of the main ways God has ordained to do that is through civil authorities. Lawmakers, law enforcers, court systems, prisons, jails, execution chambers. This is what Paul means in Romans 13, 1-4, when he wrote, There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. For He, the authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, just pause for a moment. God's not a relativist. Paul's not a relativist. Paul's clear. I know I'm not reading every verse at this point, just for short, but there is such a thing as good, there is such a thing as wrong. And no government makes the decision upon what is wrong and what is good. It exists. They're called to uphold the good and to punish the wrong. That's true with every authority. Just because you're a parent, that's an institution God instituted. It doesn't mean that every rule that you would ever make, oh, he's the authority. What he's doing is totally right. No. It's not true of, of, of elders in the local church. Well, they're the elders. You've got to obey everything they say. No, you don't. Not if they're wrong. Wrong and right and truth precede the institutions. So let me go back. I interrupted myself. For he... The civil authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because he, the authority, does not bear the sword in vain, for the authority is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God wills that human justice be upheld among governments, between citizens, through civil authorities. Jesus said to his disciples, turn the other cheek. It does not refer 
to the district attorney of Los Angeles, who should be recalled and kicked out of office, Gascon. It does not refer to, dear district attorney's office, turn your other cheek to the murderer of that loved one from that family. Doesn't mean that. It means do your duty and punish the wrong. And uphold what is good. The government, he says, does not bear the sword meaning jails, guns, execution chambers. They don't bear that authority that they got from God for nothing but to punish the wrongdoer and to uphold justice. Now, let me make this clear, this clarifying point. Never assume that morally right is synonymous with what is legal. Just let you do what Paul said, think about. There's a big difference between right and wrong and legal in any society. The more just a society, the more its laws reflect that which precedes it, which is right and wrong. If you don't get that yet, you'll get it in a second, because let me give you a couple examples. American slavery of black people was legal. But it was evil. The kidnapping, apprehending, putting into trains and prison camps and concentration camps and death camps and the murder of Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe was illegal. But it was evil. Abortion on demand in our country is legal. But it is morally reprehensible. Reverse racism in our educational systems against Asian American people is legal. To quota them out. Because their culture works too hard in their families and academics. It's evil. It's wrong. Whatever is just, Paul says, Christians are to think about those things and love it and stand for justice. So let's just use one of those as an example before I close then. So last week, we talked a lot about moral relativism, which is floating in the air everywhere. Where we are not moral relativists. We know the truth. We know him who is true. And he has revealed so much of what is right and what is wrong and how to live as individuals and as societies. 
So we stand for what's morally right. Now, in this moral relativistic culture, the pro-choice position, play with words again, she has a right to choose what she does to her body. Let's not even talk about the other body that's in her that she's killing. These are the same people that say nowadays you don't have a right to decide whether someone sticks a medicine in you or not. That pro-choice position is built on moral relativism. Why? Look, think about it. We, we, we have states in this country that have laws that make the murder of killing a fetus in a woman's body intentionally, it's murder. Wait, wait a minute. Unless, unless it's the mother who decides to have that baby killed. What's the difference? The only difference there is in the choice of the mother. If the mother chooses for her fetus to live, well, she will stop calling it a fetus and she will call it a baby. Well, then, if she's mugged and kicked in the stomach and that baby in her dies, that person rightfully can be prosecuted for the murder of a human being. But if that same mother chooses, even just for convenience, you know, i got to finish my Ph.D. now, to have the baby put to death and extracted from her body, then it's, it's not murder. It's okay. Think about it. That's what Paul calls it. Think about whatever is just right as opposed to wrong, morally wrong. If I choose for the fetus to die, then it is legal. If I want my baby to live and someone else kills it, it's illegal. The criterion is based on the will of the strong. The mother over the baby. Christians are called to think about such things, about what is objectively true concerning right versus wrong. Is it morally right to bring to an end that baby's life. The answer from a Christian worldview cannot be based on, well, it depends on the will, whether it's right or wrong, of another human being. We don't speak like the world. That's her truth. So, her truth makes it not wrong. That's sheer moral relativism. Truth exists because God is. The pro-choice worldview opts for, for creating truth and justice. The social justice movement 
ops in this moral relativistic society for creating, changing, manipulating truth and justice rather than being ruled by objective truth and justice. And this is the essence of rebellion against God, of absolute truth. Rebellion against right and wrong. It is, at its core, from Genesis, from Romans 1, the ultimate rebellion against God, whom we suppress, and I will be like God. And so we're called, sovereign grace, to be reminded again and again, through Paul, Think about such things. They're weighty. They're important. It's part of your Christianity. Think about whatever is just. And act and speak for just causes to the glory of God. Father, we thank you. As we turn our hearts and thoughts to the Lord's Supper, where you enacted justice. Lord Jesus, you symbolized what was happening in the next 24 hours of your life through the bread and the cup, where justice Moral justice had to be upheld. But you stepped in for us, for our salvation, and took justice, its penalty, upon yourself. Oh, we delight in these minutes to come, to eat and to drink of this truth. Is your body here at Sovereign Grace to the glory of your name. Amen.